Hi, everybody. Welcome to May Sway. here and you've caught us in this fourth week of Easter and we have been talking about the idea of Easter as a realized resurrection, the fact that if there is a resurrected Christ, then it should mean some things to how we practice as a community and how we think about how we live together and what we imagine is possible in this world. And that in spite of that, sometimes it feels like that kind of hope falls in a very strange 
place. And it, and it seems distant and it seems far. And that's the tension we've been talking about through this season of Easter. And as part of that, as they always do, our kids have been sort of helping remind us of that core truth that we're talking about. And look at this little crew. Guys, you're going to help us again with our Alleluia, this is risen. Or he is risen. Yeah. Fine performance. With diminished numbers. I do feel like, yeah, this is the time of year at Emmaus Way where we're just determined to compete with every conceivable thing that you could do other than this, right? Like May is always, here's talking about May being this ridiculous busy month and the semester is circling the bowl and like it's a lovely day outside. So yeah, thank you for being here on a night like that. Um, yeah, and, there, and there's also like all sorts of stuff going on. Like this list of announcements, like there's... There's a substantial number of things that we want to mention. So, Tim, you want to start with, like, yes. can? Two quick Durham can opportunities. Uh, tomorrow night, 6 to 8, at uh, Eno River Unitarian Universalist uh, uh, Fellowship, or ERUF, there's a seminar called How to Raise Money for Anything. And this is a, uh, a uh, kind of an experienced 35-year organizer who's in town doing consulting on fundraising. But if you're interested in that, then might be uh, I'm going to attend. I want to know how to raise money for my, you know, new child. Right? It's like, apparently that's expensive. I don't know. Exactly. So you're set for that. The other thing we want to call your attention to is there is the kind of famed three-day training for this. And uh, most of us, Molly's done it, I've done it, uh, several others, it, it would be fantastic for others if you had the opportunity over the years to do their three-day training, which is basically the core of organizing work. It's especially good for Omega's Way because we use organizing principles in many ways to organize our church when we're talking about things like house meetings and relational meetings and stuff that comes from this type of training. If you're interested in that, it is May 18th through the 20th, and you can talk to, uh, to me or Tim Wooten or Molly or a bunch of us. If you're, if you're, it's a weekend. I think it starts on Thursday night. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Tim. Durham Can, our local glass grassroots organizing partnership. Uh, another thing, so we had been ramping up to this, I guess, a Friday. We we're going to have a big show at the Carbo Arts Center on the, uh, doing a, basically a live run-through of Emily Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball album. And we are still going to do that. We are not going to do it Friday. So it, for, for reasons that Arcane and I could talk to you about if you want, we were in it some, like, snafus with our venue and so we decided it would be just as well to do it at a later date and so we sort of made that call within the last week and you're really looking at the core right here Tim and this is sort of Tim and Dale's project and they're going to help us find a new venue maybe in Durham this time but probably in the fall sometime yeah yeah okay so more on that later but it's going to happen just not this Friday uh what is going to happen today is that we're going to have a porch party. Jakes, you want to issue an invitation to that? Yeah, kids, come to our house. We live either straight up the lawn to Watts and take Watts, seven blocks to eight or five blocks. We live, we'll be right up the church. Yeah, and they have a lovely porch and a lovely home, and it's just a great opportunity. If you don't haven't been around Mansway very long, it's a pretty great way to get to know a lot of people. 
in a short time, or just one person. That's that's fine. You don't have to get to know everybody. Uh, also, in a, in a, let's see, the ecclesia is coming up. Is there a lay leader or lead team person that wants to talk about? That's the twenty first, I believe. Yeah. Am I going to talk about this? Well, um, we'll be talking about the budget, and um, we'll be talking about potentially more talk about our space. Um, I don't know if there's any updates on that now, but we will have them in two weeks. Yes. Yeah, that's my understanding. Is like two weeks from this date after our Sunday service, we'll have a shortened service, and then do this sort of quarterly business meeting, really more like gathering. There's pizza, and then we chat about things that are happening. The big thing's coming to the end of our budget year, and also looks like moving to a new space um, this summer. If you haven't heard more about that, you could you could find out a lot about that by asking someone, but we'll talk more about it then. And I think, are you are you want to talk about finances tonight? Is it, yeah, yeah, sure. Yes. Um, so... Uh, for those who don't know me, David Teeson, I'm the uh, treasurer here at Mayesway. As uh, you said, we're coming up to the end of our budget year, end of May 31st. Our budget year is a little bit askew from the calendar year. So it's just a very important time for us as a community as we um, craft our budget. And, and really the core of that is understanding how much can we set for our expenses. And that is based off of the contributions that you guys give to this community. Um, I, I think through the end of this past week, we were at contributions of around 94000 and that's towards our budget this year of 108000 in contributions. So we've had an amazing push over the last month or so from the community. Um, just a huge thanks, uh, but we have a little bit more to go at, towards the end of May 31st. Um, about 85% of our budget goes to our staff, our musicians, our, our children's workers, so your contributions directly go to the individuals who make this church happen. So just a huge thanks. Uh, if you don't know how to give to Emmaus Wave, we have a metallic bowl in the foyer. You can drop off uh, uh, contributions there. Also through our website, EmmausWay.net, there's a dollar sign, bottom left corner. Click on that. You can give through bank account, credit card. And then lastly, on our website is our mailing address, which is actually different from, from this physical address here. Um, so if you want to mail in a check or have thanks, and one can do it that way. Um, once again, just a huge thanks. We have a, another three weeks to kind of finish out the year, and anything you give at this point directly affects how we consider what the budget we can set for next year is. Thanks, Dave. So coming back into sort of tonight's proceedings from that bevy of announcements, lovely job, everybody. I thought we'd do great. Okay, um, so then in this fourth week of Easter, we've been trying this Realized Resurrection series, and Tim's taking us tonight into, I think, is a really, really worthwhile topic in terms of talking about the resurrection and the hope it presents, because there's a reality of sorrow in that. We, we live in a world which is, which the kind of resurrection hope we imagine is, is very absent, it seems at times, in our, in our personal lives and the lives we see around us and in the world we encounter, and so... Musically tonight, I think Mark's sort of taking us, as we often talk about, to, through the poles of that, um, setting up sort of some of the some of the outlines of what that can look like, um, some real thorough explorations of what it feels like to encounter the horror of sorrow in our lives, but then also maybe some hopeful ways to imagine around it. So just sort of setting that up, and you can talk more about that. Yeah, thanks, Ben. Yeah, these are. Um... 
I love I loved like these kinds of songs, and so this was um, this was a fun a fun night for me to pull some stuff together. Um, I was really close to doing "Heaven Knows I'm Miserable Now" by the Smiths. I was really close to trying to do that. Um, but it, it, these songs, I think, I mean, yeah, we're talking about realized resurrection, and so it seems like talking about songs of sorrow seems like they would be out of place. Uh, but I what I what I like about it, I guess, um, based on talking with Tim uh, Condor earlier in the week, to me, if, if we're not talking about the places that we don't see resurrection happening, if we're not talking about that stuff at all, then we're being dishonest. We're being intellectually dishonest. We're being spiritually dishonest with ourselves and with others. And so I hope that these songs this week can take us to a place. We'll see as we get to absolution, there'll be some differences, but... These, these songs of preparation and sing, then songs of confession also, uh, I hope, will be songs that lead us through a contemplative uh, look. Um, I love this verse uh, in this next song, uh, Losing It by Vigilantes of Love. I love this verse. Job lost all his daughters. Job lost all his sons. He lost all his crops and his animals, each and every one. But still I know whom I believe in and persuaded he is able to keep track of all the cards laid out on my table. I love that verse. Um, I was trying to think. Was it? I want to say was it Sinead O'Connor? Maybe in an in a in an interview, like earlier in her career, she was. They asked her what she was reading or something. I think I think she said she had just read the Book of Job, and that God did not come off very well in it. <laughs> I think that's. I think that's right.
songwriters Mark Hurd. You guys may be tired of hearing me say that. I think this is a beautiful one. Tomorrow lets you down again. Lay 
Mark, I saw the set list today and I was really excited about this. Thank you so much for such good work. One quick advertisement too to Tim and Dale. Thanks so much for being here. The um, the slow train uh, coming uh, Bob Dylan show. I think Tim, you were the brainchild that made that happen. Was so fantastic last year. I can't wait till the till we till we pull that off this fall. So thanks for working on that. Um, hey, I want to give you guys an opportunity to greet each other and to offer each other the peace of Christ and or just uh, connect with somebody that you don't know. If you're sitting beside somebody that you don't, don't know, certainly introduce yourself and get a chance to stand up and kind of loosen our voices before we step into the dialogue tonight. So please, greet each other. So one, you know, this is our time of the year where we have like our, our bummer of the week. And this is our bummer of the week. This is... Claire and Connor's last night with a sort of, right, not Claire, you'll be back, like, you'll, you're going to come through and something like that, but it's not a farewell on that end, but we're, it's been really fun having you guys with us through your, I think maybe what, sophomore year at Carolina, somewhere in that realm, and so, uh, awesome. You, tell us real quickly what you're doing next, we're, it's always fun for us, yeah. I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> Awesome. And, and everybody's invited to like hang at your house for Virginia Beach anytime that they need to. Just, just show up unannounced. Bring the whole family, right? <laughs> Claire, how about you? Uh, 
Sounds like really rough duty. <laughs> now, that's an awesome, that's an awesome internship. You guys have been fantastic. Claire, you did such a great job speaking three or four weeks ago and did it sick. And I have, I've had a few vivid memories of doing that where I can't quite hear myself and talking. You, you were like a, a pro, so uh, we're going to miss you guys. Uh, we will definitely miss you guys. So Molly and I have been um, essentially with this whole idea of realized resurrection. The idea is to take the notion of resurrection that theologically and imaginatively for many, many Christians particularly fits into the future. It's part of future hope. It's part of something that may happen, something that should happen, something that can happen, but it, rel- it, it rarely impacts our daily lives in terms of the practices and the ways that we shape and organize our lives. And the, 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 the calendar, the church calendar in many ways, challenges us with that idea because this is the season of Easter. In other words, Easter isn't something that just happened liturgically, but we spend four to six weeks in Easter uh, uh, reflecting on this unique, singular coming of Jesus into the world. So that's what Molly and I have been trying to do these last three or four weeks, uh, is get us to think about the notion of resurrection as a present reality in our life and our practices. And, you know, when you think about resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus literally exploded into the world, penetrating every aspect of God's creation. Life, because of that, cannot be the same. It is irrevocably changed as it's declared the powers of sin, death, greed, hatred, and fear are all defeated. The impact of Jesus' resurrection is not momentary, even in its future promises of our own resurrection, but it cuts in every direction, including the past. The event is so dramatic and singular that we realize that the whole of creation's past is a narrative pointing toward that moment of Jesus' resurrection. In this reflection, we begin to understand what it truly means For Jesus to be the Jewish Messiah, the word as described in John's gospel, the son of man and the son of God in the synoptic gospels. The age of the spirit is ushered in in Jesus' resurrection. And she is indefatigable, unquenchable, relentless, and irresistible. There is an acceleration of a universe bending in an arc of justice, beauty, and goodness. And to that I say amen. May it be so. Those are our theological thoughts, our experiences, and our hopes related to resurrection. But it's also fair to say that's good talk. And in some ways, it's big talk. And regardless of whether it's theologically true or false, it's not always how we feel about the world that we live in. Or maybe it's never how we feel about the world that we live in. The music that Mark crafted for us today was a musical liturgy that had us contemplate the things that are, and many times, as you say, uh, truthfully and authentically, we must do. The world we live in doesn't look like a world that has been shattered, changed, and remade by the resurrection of Jesus. Our lives and our communities are filled with sorrows and losses and wounds and injustices. And the powers that the scriptures declare and we hope so much have been defeated do not look like they've been defeated. 
In 1 Peter 4, 8, um, this text says, Like a roaring lion, your adversary, the devil, prowls around looking for someone to devour. And in my perspective, the powers do just this. They roam in our world, devouring at times hope and difference and beauty. Now, of course, as we say many times, and in the Christian tradition, there is always this deep hope of a future resurrection, and that hope matters. But the question that I want to ask us today is, how does sorrow, the losses, the disappointments, the frustrations, small and epic and large, how do they fit into your practice and experience of a resurrection life? How do you understand the reality of sorrow in a world that we declare is changed completely by resurrection. Now, that's my question for you today, but, uh, and I'm going to give it right back to you in just a moment. But uh, I'm going to essentially ask, how do you do that? How do you factor sorrow into this hope and experience of resurrection in our lives today? But to help you answer that a little bit, the lectionary texts today, I think, are really helpful. Each of them, in some ways, crafts a different response to that question. So I'm going to ask the question again, and you can use these as, as help or not uh, in doing that. But would a couple of you, uh, three of you read, somebody take the Acts 2 text, someone take the very familiar 23rd Psalm, and someone take First um, Peter 2? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayer. The prayers. All came upon everyone. Because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple, they broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Thanks, Brian. So that's the Acts piece. How about Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not run. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the right path for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, the rod and the staff that comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord my whole life long. Thanks, Susan. First to you. For it is to your credit if. Being aware of God, you endure pain while suffering unjustly. If you endure when you are beaten for doing wrong, where is the credit in that? But if you endure when you do right and suffer for it, you have God's approval. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. When he was abused, he did not return abuse. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that free from sins we might live for righteousness by his means. 
you have been eating. For you were going astray like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and garden of your sheep. Thanks, Will. So, this is definitely your turn. I want you to preach it, to challenge it, to put it together, to question it. Uh, but how do you factor in this notion of sorrow and loss and disappointment in your understanding of a practice life of faith on the other side of Jesus' resurrection? How do you work it out? What do you do? So, Tim, First uh, Peter 2, someone who studies martyrdom professionally, I'm always skeptical of that discourse, but it reminds me of something I read this morning that infuriated me. My home state of Oklahoma that passed a law that said um, if you trespass on any energy projects, you will be fined $10,000 and liable for over a year in jail. And if an organization sponsors it, there's something to 100 times that fine. Um, which is obviously a response to the no dapple movement and Oklahoma striking a path to say we're in support of, of oil. And, um, I mean, it just, just in reading it this time, reminds me of the sacrifices people made, and Christine could, could chime in, um, she was up there, but, but for that, with, you know, it, at, now it, it seems like a, a loss, right, and it seems like anyone that would be involved in that now, who would stand up, is subjecting themselves to sure loss. Um, so it's this is a day where there was a, a, a victory on one front um, I think from my perspective uh, but, but there's a lot of people that are putting themselves out there with, with severe personal sacrifice that really don't see any immediate results of it so I'm actually less cynical about this martyrdom language <laughs> Brandon's a big Arsenal fan he was pretty fired up today at this no <laughs> probably talking about the French election uh, but uh, <laughs> The, uh, yeah, so yeah, there's a context. First Peter draws us into this. It's a text that lives in this language of suffering and then bounces. It's, it's Mark's favorite book of the Bible. It, it bounces back and that's a joke if you know Mark, but it bounces back and forth from present to past, but it, 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 it grabs this language of real pain and loss for the sake of the kingdom. And that's, that's a, a, an important text. Thanks, Brandon. Others, how do you factor in uh, the notion of sorrow, things that are broken in our world with the expectations of resurrection and the singularness of Jesus having come in the world and, and, and conquered these powers by declaration? Far away, I read, and um, my Old Testament knowledge is slim, so forgive me, I forget who the character was, but a woman, a female character in the Old Testament, um, I read in a blog post, she mourned over the loss of children um, and people that she had never met um, for days and days, and um, that one struck me so much just as someone who takes grief and sorrow seriously because they know that's not right, even if it wasn't their people. Um, I found that really moving about what my role might be in sorrow in this world. It's to grieve with those who grieve, 
Because we know that is not that's not the promise of the rest. Yeah. It's interesting that the Psalm 23 text talks about this idea of perhaps the greatest promise in the Bible of the presence of God in our lives. But it has an implication, doesn't it? That we would be deeply present to those who suffer, even if there's not a perceivable direct consequence in our lives. And so that implies not only a state of the heart, but a location of our bodies to some degree. Yeah, absolutely. Others, thank you guys. This is great. Christine, go for it. Um, just sort of picking up with some of what Ms. Kay has said, I was I'm struck by feeling really powerless right now to even sit next to people in the morning because the sufferings that I'm seeing are not physically close to me, but they're on other part. They're in, they're in Texas or they're in Syria or they're somewhere in between. They're in between spaces, right? There are people on roads that they wish they hadn't been on. There are the people who are being genocided in Burma. I mean, right, it's it's just so hard to not even get to, like, it's to see the suffering and to not even be able to sit next to it just to feel so powerless to even lament it, you know? Let alone like try to solve it, which is of course what I'm going to try to do because like that's my personality, and because it's just unbearable. It's unbearable to see the amount of suffering that there is in the world right now. Um, and so what I like about what I like about the story of the resurrection is that there was like a really torturous death beforehand, um, and I don't think that that's a great thing. I think that's like a worst moment, in fact. Um, but it feels like the human story. <clears throat> and that the human story of real suffering and betrayal and torture at the hands of the state for being a good person. And mothers who lose sons, friends who get dropped. I mean, all of that just, I'm like, that just, for, for me, like, I need this story because. Because it's really hard to be distant and get to feel the agony of it. Um, I wish I, were, I wish I had something happy to say, but I was just yeah. glad for needing to sit in sorrow. Sure. You know your point, Christine. Mark, it reminds me. I was so thankful. This may have been ten years ago when one of your favorite books. You asked me to read uh, Frederick Buechner's. Uh, I think it's Telling the Truth. Uh, gospel as tragedy, comedy, and fairy tale. I think I make up the order wrong on that. But the point that Buechner makes that's similar to yours, Christine, is the idea that the comedy of the gospel, the joy, the laughter, the mirth, makes no sense without the tragedy of the gospel. In fact, the comedy is trite and sentimental without that. And so you're, you're inviting us into two things that we do not like pushing close together. right? But to some degree, there's an incredible not only authenticity of spirit, but just authenticity of looking at the world around us. And today it just seems like, I mean, when you think of the, the number of just relocations from one war, uh, it, there's just a, an overwhelming uh, wealth of, of obvious data of, of suffering. So, yeah. Others, how, how do you, yeah, Brett. 
Um, so, for those that don't know, I, uh, I work at a prison in Raleigh, uh, the, the main women's prison. It's just making me think about, there's a couple different of our residents that, you know, I didn't know them when they first came into prison. They've been there maybe five to ten years, the couple that I'm thinking of. And, and they're ones that hit me a little more closer because they seem more like me and they, 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 they just seem more like us. And they ended up there for, you know, either drunk driving or something. Like they made some bad decisions and they got really unjust sentences. Um, you know, one that got 60 years for a drunk driving incident. Um, you know, another one that killed her best friend in a drunk driving incident and got 15 years. And, you know, I didn't know them through their bitterness and grief if that was part of it, but I see them and they're the ones that, of all the people in the prison, that they've chosen joy. They've chosen um, to not be getting infractions every day and to not be... Uh, they've chosen to to live life and in a way that I enjoy and kind of that I don't have all the time. Um, and to see them in that space and the way that they've chosen to live and the, the way they've chosen to, to be in community, even with you know, with one another, um, to me is just hopefulness. Because I'm like looking like, I would just be so angry all the time. Um, and so, and, and I don't always understand where they're coming from. It just, it just made me think about it because, yeah. Brett, you know, you think about these words. Yea, though I, I'm reading the old version, walk through the valley of the dark, walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Uh, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me. Those are hard words because the, the, the darkness of the valley and the magnitude of the joy in that text seem to be unfairly placed. And I think that your experience, Brett, is one of those. I, I, I probably if we went around the room, many of you could tell stories of people who have found meaning or joy or great exulting kind of lives of worship in the midst of deeply dire circumstances. And it's, it's in some ways a, a mystery, except that probably you've done this at some point in your life. You've probably had that some, you, you know, kind of one of those moments where you wanted to see your faith be canceled out by your pain, but you looked at it and you said, no, it's still here. I'm still hopeful. I'm still building towards something. So, um, and in fact, on, on that vein, Brett, one of the things that I have, uh, by the way, this dialogue has one target entirely for it. It's me. Uh, much of what we talk about in this, I find the most difficult things to, to process because my, my instinct, my impulse is to name what's wrong and get close to it and, and cry with it. That's the easiest thing, the thing that I feel in many ways at times most called to do. And so this week I've been pondering this 23rd Psalm and that juxtaposition of darkness and with, with joy that moves like the psalmist so often does, pivots on a single verse uh, from one, one pole to the next. And um, one of the things I thought about with this text is it asks me to do a couple things. It asks me 
to live in faith or in trust. The idea that God is with us and God is with this world is definitely an act of faith and trust for me. And then in some ways, it implies that we have to live in a form of practice, that a form of discipline that allows us to be honest people, but also worshiping and hopeful and expectant people. And so to some degree, I've been thinking a lot about this. I want to read something to you. Um, this, is, this is the two pages. I won't read all of them. These are the two pages that, given who I am, I should read like at least once a week. Uh, and every time I read them, it's usually been about four years, and I, I, I kind of unleash a profanity and go, why haven't I read this in four years? But um, one of the things that, that I've noticed so many people from, um, I don't know, from who's the woman um, who uh, wrote the big business book, Lean In? Sheryl Sandberg, her book on Plan B. I listened to her read part of that on, on, um, on NPR a couple weeks ago. And the, the thing that she talked about beyond her kind of visceral pain of losing a spouse and partner was gratitude. That somehow that was, and, and, and my eyes have been open to the number of people that, are, that talk about gratitude as a discipline, as in some way gives us the freedom to be honest and real about the pain that we see, but live in a reality of hope and live in the presence of Jesus' resurrection. So this is from Henry Nouwen's Return of the uh, Prodigal Son. Susan, how many times have you heard me read this? At least 10. <laughs> How many times do I need to read it? <laughs> More. Yeah. But so this is to me, but I think you'll get something from this too. Um, it, it talks about these kind of dual themes of trust and gratitude. This is lodged in a, a scripture story, but I don't know that you'll need to know it to, to get this. Uh, and then the whole subtext is being found by God and being loved. Without trust... I cannot let myself be found. Trust is that deep inner conviction that God wants me home. But along with trust, there must be gratitude, the opposite of resentment. That's where it starts messing me up because I can do some serious resentment. Resentment and gratitude cannot coexist since resentment blocks the perception and experience of life as a gift. My resentment tells me that I don't receive what I deserve. It only manifests itself in envy. Gratitude, however, goes beyond the mine and thine and claims the truth of all of life as pure gift. In the present, I always thought of gratitude as a spontaneous response to the awareness of gifts received. But now I realize that gratitude can also be lived as a discipline. The discipline of gratitude is the explicit effort to acknowledge that all that I am and have is given to me as a gift of love, a gift to be celebrated with joy. Gratitude as a discipline involves a conscious choice. I can choose to be grateful even when my emotions and feelings are still steeped in hurt and resentment. It's amazing, and I suspect many of you have felt this very guiltily at some time, when something really good is happening in your life relationally, you've 
have you had a child, gotten a promotion, something that you've worked really hard at and you've caught yourself thinking, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that's wrong. How, how, do, I, how do I do those things at the same time? And I suspect that gratitude is one of those ways. It's amazing how many occasions present themselves in which I can choose gratitude instead of complaint. I can choose to be grateful when I'm criticized, even when my heart still responds in bitterness. I can choose to speak about goodness and beauty, even when my inner eye still looks for someone to accuse or someone to call ugly. I can choose to listen to the voices that forgive and look at the faces that smile, even while I still hear words of revenge and see grimaces of hatred. There's always the choice between resentment and gratitude because God has appeared in my darkness, urged me to come home, and declared in a voice filled with affection, you are with me always, and all I have is yours. Indeed, I can choose to dwell in the darkness in which I stand, point to those who are seemingly better off than I, lament about my many misfortunes that have plagued me in the past, and therefore wrap myself in this resentment. But I don't have to do this. There's the option to look into the eyes of the one who came to search for me and see therein that all that I am and all that I have is pure gift, calling for gratitude. The choice for gratitude rarely comes without some real effort. But each time I make it, the next choice is a little easier, a little freer, a little self, less self-conscious. Because every gift I acknowledge reveals another and another until finally even the most normal, obvious, and seemingly mundane event or encounter proves to be filled with grace. There's an Estonian proverb that says, what does not thank for little will not thank for much. Acts of gratitude make one grateful because step by step they reveal that all is grace. And, and for me, the reason I need to read those words often is it's so easy. There's so many. Even for someone who is immensely privileged like myself, there's so many places that I can live in resentment and, 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 and sometimes even call that critical consciousness or awareness or all of those things. But usually, usually especially living around a group of friends who are critically conscious. It's not something that I've figured out and I need to tell you. That's something I learn from you guys all the time. Usually that's my code language that means I'm utterly resentful of something and this allows me to sit in it longer. Um, and, it, and in some cases, gratitude seems like such hard work. But in doing it, I often find that there's such a profound liberation that comes with gratitude. It's a different way of living in a world of blood and tears and pain and injustice. And it's asking and framing that which I have as gift, which, you know, I don't like that narrative. I want to feel like I earned it all, did something, worked harder than someone else to have gotten something. So those are the words that poor Susan has heard for 15 years or longer. But those are the words that I feel like I need to read far more often than I do. What I wanted to do tonight is have us close in a couple of forms of prayer on this because this felt to me like something we would do rather than talk too much about. Um, and so I'm going to frame this as, an, as a contemplative or a social prayer 
for you. But here's a, a first question. Where are you experiencing resentment? Today, this week, or just in this season of your life? Can you name how that resentment is impacting your life? And for, so let me read that again to give you a chance to think about that. What, where are you experiencing resentment today, this week, or in this season of your life? Can you name how that resentment is impacting your life? And here's two ways to pray for this. There's an introvert way and an extrovert way of praying about this. For introvert way, I'm just going to give you, they're going to do this like in three minutes. Take three minutes of silence to reflect on those things. Feel free to get up and walk around this room or walk out of this room. Um, however, that feels the safest way for you to think about this. Um, I suspect looking around the room, that'll be about half the room. The other half of the room, the more extroverted side of the room, I'm going to encourage you, uh, this is the way I pray. Uh, and there's a few people around the room that force me to do this, and I'm tremendously thankful that they do that, by expressing it to someone else and hearing their reaction. Uh, and so that kind of social prayer is where I've heard the most clearest, when I've ever heard the most clearest of this is how I need to be. So if you want to do that in the three minutes, stand up and grab someone and give them the answer to that, a partial answer to that, where are you experiencing resentment? How is it impacting you? So that can be very social and very loud and very quiet. And for those of you who are the quiet types, it'll be loud enough that no one will notice that you're being quiet. So let me give you three minutes to do that. Does that feel like too fast? Can you pull it off? All right, let's take three minutes. I have one more of these to do. So stand up or sit down, walk out of the room if you'd like, walk around the room if you'd like, um, or, or, or grab somebody and just say, here's how I'm experiencing resentment. Here's how it impacts me. And I'll give us a shout in three minutes. Okay, you introverts. That was great because one of the people that I, I love, like all of you, SK is one of those people who ask me questions that make me answer those anyway. And so I was thinking about that already, like a, like a two-hour confession that I did with SK at Ye old Waffle Shop one day, uh, which I needed to do. So here's the second question on this, a second short practice on this is um, name something that you're grateful for. What is, a, what is a piece of gratitude that, that you can hold and place kind of in the center of your whoever you are that can be momentum to that practice? And the same deal is on. Feel free to stand up. This may be easier to do. Tell somebody what you're grateful for or, or do the introvert version, which is entirely allowable. I'm going to give us two minutes on this one. Hold on to that gratitude. Mark, I think we're going to make this happen. we got a couple of songs. I want to read a closing prayer. This is going to be just a, a prayer for us on this. And I want to freely say this is a plagiarized prayer. Uh, one that I, I basically threw myself in the context of someone's beautiful words. So when you hear some really good words, those words belong to uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who is the rabbi of London. So if you hear something beautiful, it's his. But if you want to ask me later, I will definitely uh, attribute that much more clearly. But this is a prayer for gratitude. And, and I did this today 
in a weird kind of preparation. I, I, I needed five hours to do this, but I did it for two hours. Is tried to write myself into this prayer. So what I did is I took his beautiful words and threw some of my own illustrations in this. So this is a prayer for gratitude. I thank God for the gift of our family and the love we share. Now we've had our share of pain and frustration. Extended family who critique, judge, accuse, demand constant affection, and vote with a mind-numbing ignorance for the needs and wounds of others. At times we've pushed too hard as parents and expected too much. And mystifyingly, in turn, there have been times when we haven't expected enough. We keep confusing those moments. There are moments when we've lost sight of each other, cannot hear each other, and reject overtures of love, support, and companionship as burden or insult. But through it all, we've experienced a love as a family and love as an extended family that is undaunted by the failures and wounds and promises to continue through any condition. I thank God for the friends who stood by us in tough times. This is for us, I must admit, one of those tough times where uncertainties, frustrations, unfulfilled yearnings, and disappointments threaten to overwhelm us almost every day. Yet, if I choose to see it, I am, we are, beset by constant kindnesses and gracious gifts that come from family, friends, this community, and strangers. I choose to see. And I choose to see how trivial so many of those challenges are compared to friends who face overwhelming loss. I thank God for the perspective that gratitude offers. I thank God for those rare souls who lift us when we're laid low by loss and sensitivity, mundane discourtesies, and the anger of those we have tried to love. And I thank God for the people who are synonymous, who are anonymous to me and so many others who daily light up this world with simple gestures of humanity and decency. I thank God for the strange and mystical gifts of artists. Mystical to me because I have none of these gifts. But these gifted souls ask us to find emotions that we have lost or intentionally repress. They ask us to see a world unmarred by hate, division, and malice. And expand our imagination to what our world can be if totally committed to the jubilee grace of God. It has been said that God took some of the light of the first day of creation and gave it to Rembrandt to put into his paintings. I think God gave that light to everyone who creates. I thank God for that first cup of coffee shared almost every morning with Mimi for 32 years, for legal pads, legal pads are big, for bookshops and cafes, the rare joy of a well-written sentence, the athletic beauty of a soccer match played in the cool of the evening, for theater, for winter, for rain, for Henry Nouwen, the pleasure and pain of having run many miles, the visible impact of a grace or blessing that you have written or said into the life of people that you love, or for children who simply just still yearn for friendship and an occasional word of advice. I thank God for the secular friends who fill my life and dwell in this community, who keep us from believing the unbelievable, from self-righteously defending the shameful aspects of our tradition, and force us to prove our faith by the beauty and grace we bring into the world. I thank God for all the defeats and failures, 
that makes leadership so difficult. I say that prayer for all of our lay leaders. There's many in the room here. Because the hard things are the only ones worth doing. And because all genuine achievement involves taking risks, making mistakes, and never giving up. I thank God for the gift of faith, which taught me to see the dazzling goodness and grace that surround us if we only open our eyes and minds. I thank God for helping me to understand that faith is not certainty, but the courage to live with uncertainty, not a destination, but the journey itself. And I thank God for calling me to live in gratitude, a call that I resist with an organized fury. But without gratitude, there's no happiness, only the fleeting distraction of passing pleasures that grow ever less consequential with the passing years. Amen. I'd offer that is that would be a great practice if you wanted to, to write your own narrative into that prayer. And I'll send it to you if you're interested. So I want to offer, as we head towards confession and absolution, I want to offer a quick uh, trigger warning for uh, for this first song, No Shade in the Shadow of the Cross by Sufjan Stevens. There's some rough language in it. There's uh, some difficult uh, concepts in it if you have small children in the room with you if you're take a quick look ahead um, see if you feel comfortable with them being in the room or not if not um, it's a wonderful time for a three and a half minute walk so it's very nice outside so this uh, comes off of an album that Sufjan wrote a couple years back called Carrie and Lowell which is an album entirely about uh, his mother um, and his mother's death because it had just happened as he was writing it, and he was beginning to deal with a relationship with his mother, who they had been estranged for some time, um, at least to some degree estranged. Uh, She had suffered from a variety of mental illness and uh, substance abuse problems, and and this song and others on the album are sort of about Sufjan's difficulty in dealing with her death, difficulty in understanding the death of someone that he felt that he didn't entirely know, um, and ultimately, some of the things on the album are about his own descent into, uh, into substance abuse and uh, ways of trying to fill this gap or this hole that was inside of him uh, after her death. So when we started talking about having a, a night where we discuss sorrow in some substantive way, this song came to mind for me because I, it is just a devastating lyric to me. Um, this idea of, of there not being any shade in the shadow of the cross. The cross is this skinny, um, skinny thing that, that casts no shade for uh, rest. Um, he even says in here, I slept on my back in the shade of the meadowlark. Meadowlark is a very small, uh, very, very small bird. It's not an ostrich or an emu or something. Uh, so that, that idea that... Uh, that the things that are supposed to bring us comfort uh, sometimes fail to do so. This is no shade in the shadow of the cross.
songs to me this is actually more of a song of absolution than confession uh, although it is a confession too that everybody hurts but the idea that it could be something uh, the idea that it could be something that the, the, the way that we find hope and comfort and a, a path to move forward is knowing that we're not alone uh, knowing that others walk beside us in the journey to me that is that is what a community of faith is all about uh, whatever your community of faith may be that's that's what it ultimately is all about, is people walking alongside of you, experiencing loss with you, celebrating joy with you, that, that acknowledging the humanity that we all have. So 
let this song sort of bring us as a bridge from confession to absolution. Everybody hurts 
to wrap us in the warmth of kindness, saying, I know what it cost you to get here. The coffee's nearly ready. Come on in. For at this table, we don't deny the pain and suffering of Christ and the pain and suffering of our world and the brokenness and sorrow and resentment that so many of us feel. But this table, when we come around it, and when we come around one another, offers us hope and a warm drink and the possibility for gratitude and a realized resurrection in our lives and in our world when it feels almost impossible. And for me, it's the warmth of that coffee that I find around this table with you all in a warm embrace and a smile and the recognition that life is hard that allows me to go out into the world fuller of gratitude than when I came. And so I hope 
as we come to this table and break bread for one another and pour wine, we will not run away from our sorrow, but we will also not run away and be scared of gratitude and realize resurrection and what that can mean. That the table, that we are a community that can hold both for one another, for ourselves. So I encourage you to come to the open table at Mayus Way. You don't have to have a right belief or right thought or be a certain way. All are welcome. We break bread and pour wine or juice for one another and say the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you, or also the love of God for you, the peace of God poured out for you. So let us come with our sorrow and our gratitude as a people believing in the resurrection.